Who do you think that could be? Let's hear it again. Here's a hint: they're alive. They're universally despised, and they have something to do with the House of Representatives of the United States of America. Welcome to Resound, a weekly showcase of audio work from around the globe, curated by the Third Coast Festival. I'm Gwen Maxai. As you probably know by now, since you've undoubtedly been passing up invitations from kings, sultans, governors, or maybe just your chihuahua, in order to sit by your radio on Sunday nights, the stuff you hear on Resound is some of our favorite audio work called from all over the internet, our colleagues in other cities, other shows in other countries, and even from our own mailbox. Documentaries, features, narratives, soundscapes, investigative reports, and experimental sound—all neatly packaged for you Sunday nights at five. Tonight we've got four pieces: New Violet Flame, when one sister leaves her old life behind to satisfy a spiritual quest; another gets maternal and checks up on her, microphone in hand. Letter from Chicago: When a son moves away from home, his mom's concern about his safety prompts him into the streets, microphone in hand. Paint mixers, no mom here. Just an artist searching for her true colors and a hidden microphone anywhere but in hand. And geek speak. Frankly, it's all geek to me. And if you're still wondering what that weird sound was at the top of the show, keep listening, and you'll find out. So come, take a break, take a seat, take a listen. Something we've all been tempted to do at some point or another: pack up everything, say goodbye to the familiar things around us, and forge a completely new life somewhere else. After Brenda Hutchinson's sister did just that, Brenda visited and came away with tonight's first story, called "New Violet Flame." Okay, what blessing are we gonna do? Um, Buddha. Um, Buddha. Uh, I'm gonna do God. When you got our father? For many years now, my sister has been a member of the Church Universal and Triumphant. The spiritual leader of the church is Elizabeth Clare Prophet, and its headquarters is in Montana. When my sister began having her children, I finally realized that she'd really committed herself to being in this church and to raising her family in Montana as part of a religious community that I knew very little about, and this made me uncomfortable. So I decided to go there and see for myself. So I spent three months living in the church community one winter. It was very cold, but also an incredibly beautiful place. High desert surrounded by snow-covered mountains, hardly any trees, 
no street lights or paved roads. So at, at night it was really dark and you could see lots of stars. It felt very still and remote and was so quiet, except for the wind. And it was very windy much of the time. While I was there, I spoke with and recorded lots of people. They were my sister's friends and neighbors, as well as officials in the church, including Elizabeth Clare Prophet herself. As time wore on, more and more people were willing to talk with me and to share things they normally did not share with outsiders. I found this very reassuring. And all of the thoughts of thy being soared over the ageless hills of cosmic memory. Come again as I meditate upon thee. Each day as I call forth thy memories from the scroll of immortal love, I am thrilled anew. Patterns wondrous to behold enthrall me with the wisdom of thy creative scheme. So fearfully and wonderfully am I made that none can mar thy design. None can despoil the beauty of thy holiness. None can discourage the beauty of my eyes. I certainly admire the work my mother and father have done. Um, I've seen them in every possible situation, you know, since I was a child, and they were both extremely hardworking in the founding and the formation of this organization, and they put every bit of themselves that was available and more into it. They've been an example to me of walking that path of a reunion with God. One that I sometimes feel, you know, unable to follow in every way. You know, it's it's it, they're they both wear very very, you know, big shoes. But the violet flame is called the seventh ray, and its function is transmutation or alchemy, transformation. The violet flame is a flame of forgiveness. The violet flame, which is the gift of Saint Germain, is given to us and by decreeing, which means to affirm by the name of God I am. Uh, the prayer of the violet flame. By doing that, we can reach people all over the world from our heart and from our love. We can send and direct that violet flame. So the violet flame is just a wonderful action of the Holy Spirit, and there's no question that you can see the difference in your life when you invoke the violet flame. A very simple way to invoke the violet flame is to use the name of God. God gave the name I Am to Moses. And to simply say, I am a being of violet fire. I am the purity God desires. 
And that means we take the power of the name of God, I am, and we qualify it with the direction, with the affirmation that God is where I am and his violet flame is enfolding me now. And through it, I am becoming the purity that God desires for me. I am a being of violet fire. I am the purity God desires. I am a being of violet fire. I am the purity God desires. I am a being of violet fire. I am the purity God desires. I am a I love being out here. I love it. I, I love looking at the stars at night and seeing a sunset and knowing it's not from pollution. I like that if you're broke down on the road that cars stop and, you know, ask if you need help. I feel really fortunate and blessed to be able to have my kids growing up here. I think that they have a real shot at a, a, a strong foundation being out here and, and growing up without a lot of external um, stimulus or distractions. I mean, it's, it's just a totally different life out here. So, I love it. Everything is different. There's so many restrictions. I mean, you cannot eat sugar. You can, there's a lot of things you cannot wear red, you cannot wear black, you cannot wear orange. That's your way of expressing yourself, and we're required to wear skirts. Now that how can a person express themselves if they've got to wear a skirt every day? Even in the rule book, they say that you're not, that even on weekends, you should not wear uh, spandex because it reveals too much of your shape. That's, that's, that's the limit. That, that's just too much. I like carrots and fried beans and burritos. Lots of sweets, um, mainly cold sweets, but sometimes they're a little bit too cold and I get my eyes watery. And I like the church. The embodiments um, of the Ascended Masters are the most interesting to me. My favorite is Saint Germain. Um, he he is sort of like very magical, and 
he can. At least this is what our church believes he can. Um, go, go through walls and stuff like that. I think that's neat. about half hour away from us living down in the village and she has a really nice garden she has a water circling a tree with roots and she's really nice and pretty and she's making little houses for gnomes you can open the doors and stuff and open the roof to look in she's lets gnomes come in there and stuff she likes fairies a lot too and she's one of the nicest ladies in the village It was a beautiful day of clouds and blue skies, and all of a sudden I found myself playing on the Nile River in the sand. I just knew intuitively, I knew in my being, I was on the Nile, and I was playing. And by and by, I just floated back to my sandbox in Red Bank. So I ran and I asked my mother what happened, and she said, you've remembered a past life. And I never really had any trouble with the Catholic Church until I got old enough to think for myself. Confession. Why, if I sinned on Monday, did I have to wait till Saturday? And then why could I only talk to the priest and not a nun? So it bothered me. It bothered me that I wasn't allowed to just talk to God myself. Elizabeth Clare Prophet was going to be at the University of Penn. So I went to see her. And she's just talking and talking and talking. And I can remember everywhere she moved, I saw purple. If you can't touch it, I don't see it. And I've never seen anything, but I saw this field of purple all the way around her whole being. And I don't really remember too much of what she had to say, because I kept trying to figure out how they were making this purple come out of her. We had gone to, so aptly named, after one of our study groups, the Love Light Bakery. And uh, Jen says, well, Joe White, stand up. And she stepped forward me, wrapped her arms around me, and just gave me a big hug. I saw a bolt of light, pink light. It was about as big around as a softball, coming right out of her heart into mine. And it also made me lightheaded. And what my computer, my brain came up with was so many years of looking at cartoons when a guy would get conked over the head with a frying pan. I saw that same thing, and I heard the birds. I've always dreamed of living where it's springtime all the year. That's my favorite season. Because <laughs> people would say, well, what do you want to go to Montana for? It's so cold up there. But, well, i got friends up there. And uh, sometimes I think, when you get my age and you get to feeling bad, then you get down, you know, and you wonder what's going to happen to you. I am 87 years old, will be next month. I've got no relatives here, but I know of. So, 
Being in embodiment is because we have will to be here. And one of the reasons we desire to be here is that we have unfinished business. We have unfinished business with people and relationships. We have unfinished business because each of us has a very unique divine plan. And believe it or not, you can get weary of this world. You can, you can say that your longings and your desires are for the octaves of light where there are golden age civilizations going on at this time where there are much more highly evolved beings, uh, where there are universities of the spirit. All is light. We've exhausted our loves, our relationships, and we know there's a place for us that will be more challenging. And so there comes a time when we desire to transcend this mode of life and go on. So the ascension makes you permanently one with God, and you don't ever need to go back again and wear a mortal body with its frailties and so forth. So that's called an ascended master light body, and you are an immortal being once you have made your ascension. That was a year after my dad died, so... He was in the hospital for the month of April in Bozeman, and that and that's where he died. And that and that's where he died. He was able to hang on to see all of his family, and then uh, the day a day later, you know, he left. Why my dad died? Why my brother was in an accident? I did not know what happened then, but I understand more now. Having my dad graduate, ascend, ascend. As far as from my point of view, myself, my 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 relation with him, it hasn't really changed. He's uh, still my father, but he, I see him. He's other people's fathers too, from other embodiments. You know, I I could say I talk to him sometimes, but just how you would talk in a to Jesus or somebody else. Um, it's it's hard to I explain. I lost one of my best friends. You know, I don't have a father to call up, you know, to go backpacking with or to, you know, to do whatever. There is that loss, you know. Just different available, differently available. Um, well, that's just one of the things which, about these teachings is you never know everything. We've been told that everyone can make their ascension at the end of this life. It is possible. Some might have to work harder than that because of karma and past life, but it is possible. It is special, but I say not really special. You're not doing something that's that no one else, that that no one else can can do.
What you're in right now is the entryway. And there's many scenarios to having to use this. And if you would have come in and you've been contaminated by fallout, you'd wash down with a hose, which is over here. And then you'd step into this area, which is our decontamination area. And someone would help you wash down in here. And you need someone to help you because if you've been in fallout, you can have in your ears, your nose, you need something. We have a fallout shelter, as you know. You say that word, and you touch a very deep, sensitive nerve. Atomic weapon go off nearby. You get a tremendous pressure. To the degree that these misunderstandings have led to people thinking that we were a survivalist cult. Uh, bomb shelters are not a major part of our lives. We have other things that we like to think about. A shower. There's a commode behind the door. We can't ignore the nature of the world that we live in. You have a place where you have the largest collection of nuclear weapons in the world, and you have the greatest concentration of political instability. You've seen hmm. it all. I wonder what that means. So if all the lights go out, we can still find our way to the exit. In effect, a lot of our critics are asking us to not respond to things that are obvious in the world. This all sounds bizarre. There have been previous civilizations going back for hundreds of millions of years maybe longer on this planet and that some of the civilizations were great had great light they were all golden age civilizations various root races what we call them whole life waves came and evolved without ever ever having um, descended to the level of physicality that we are and won the ascension and returned to God back and back and back and back and that over time um, there was a there was a fall which ultimately impacted earth Earth, as I understood it, became a home to the people who decided that they would let people who, from other planets who had lagged behind in the revolution come here to try to give them a spin, and they underestimated the problems that would come here, and it caused a, a, a level of fall. And see, basically, uh, in the old days, people could create. Um, they imitated the creation of God because they were of a higher evolution than we currently are right now, and they knew the secrets of creation, but often they created forms that were essentially evil. They were, had a distortion of what the divine pattern was supposed to be. And that we have the record of that creation with us in the, um, the fossils that still exist here now of things like dinosaurs, you know what I mean? But what I think is even more important than the fact that there were dinosaurs is the fact that there were people who had the power and the capacity to create them. There are forces of light and forces of darkness, and that our church takes cognizance of that. We don't spend a great deal of time talking to the outside world about it because to some degree it sounds like um, uh, nonsense. And to whatever degree that you want to account for and take those things into consideration, all religious traditions, particularly in their esoteric forms, recognize that there is good and evil, and that there are always a relatively small number of people who are first of all, cognizant of this fact and willing to do battle with the forces of evil on behalf of, an un, of a humanity that is unaware of what is actually going on.
and that's what one of our, our major contributions to society is even though it is unknown or unknowable by most of the people because even if we told them they wouldn't understand it and the rest would probably find it humorous and try to ridicule it so it's just that simple New Violet Flame produced by Brenda Hutchinson this story was first heard in 2002 on the documentary program Soundprint. Coming up, a story that gives flesh tone a whole new meaning, the language of geeks, and eavesdropping on a love letter of sorts. I'm Gwen Maxi. We'll be right back. Sound, a collection of radio stories curated by the Third Coast Festival on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. So, does a mom ever stop worrying about her kids? I don't think so. I know mine never did. So when producer Jonathan Menhivar left home and moved halfway across the country, his mother did what mothers do. She worried. Until he thought of an ingenious way to calm his mother's fears. This piece originally aired on The Savvy Traveler in 2003. It's called Letter from Chicago. Hello. Hi, it's Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? All right. So, what exactly did, did you guys talk about when you talked to my dad about being worried about me? Um, he mentioned that he was worried that you were going there without a job already lined up. And I told him I'm really nervous about it, you know. Um, I don't know the people that you're friends with. It's kind of like, yeah, I would like to know your friends, but how am I going to know them? They're in Chicago and I'm over here in California. And I worry about your happiness. Are you happy? Mom, I've been thinking about what we were talking about on the phone the other day, and um, I know you're worried about me, and I know it's hard that we don't have the money to come see each other right now, but, um, you know, if you really want to, sometimes you can travel just by walking down the street and talking to people, and um, I know you really like talking to people, so I thought that that's what we'd do, that I'd take you on a little vacation and introduce you to some of the people I've met around town. Um, I thought we'd go first to the laundromat around the corner that I go to. There's this woman in there I want you to meet that uh, helped me out when I was in there. I got my hands all wet in the washer and she gave me a towel. And, and then there was this dryer that was broken, or I thought it was broken, and she showed me how to fix it. My name is Carmen Reyes. And I came to Chicago when I was 13. I came to live with my mother from Puerto Rico. That was, you know, way, way, way back. The rent was so cheap. It was only $32 a month. At that time, the neighborhood was super good. 
You could even sleep with your windows open, leave your bicycle outside, leave your shoes outside, whatever you leave outside, you find the next day. But not, not this time. You, you leave something outside, half hour you come back, it's not there any longer. <laughs> I went to art school for two years. I went to YNCA College. What, were you painting? Or? Uh-huh. I was painting abstracts. And uh, I was learning how to take pictures. But the teacher, she quit, so everybody was stuck. Working here, do you get to meet a lot of people? A lot of people. Good people, bad people, gunbangers, no gunbangers, girls, boys. All kind of people come here. Spanish, white, Mexican. We have all kind of people here. You find all the nations mostly in here. You know, people, they have to do laundry anyways, no matter what. <laughs> Mom, remember when I used to insist on wearing cowboy boots when I went outside, even when I was wearing shorts? Well... There's this place right up the street that I think I would have liked a lot then. This western store called Alcala's that my friend told me is a good place to buy jeans. Um, there's a big sign that says, Ropa para caballeros. Okay, Jorge, what are you going to say? Okay, let's go to the other My name is Louis. How are you related to... Well, I'm one of the oldest brothers. Okay. We're run by seven brothers. We carry boots, we carry saddles, suits, um, kids' boots, women's boots, men's boots. We carry stuff for horses. We carry spurs, purses, blouses, jackets, everything. We got everything that you could think of in Western. The only thing we don't have is a real-life horse. Oh, we had a real-life horse once back about three or four years ago. We made a commercial. We had a big horse come in the store here. We brought him in the store by the register. About 9, 10 o'clock in the morning, we're going to make a commercial. And people are walking in, all of a sudden they see a big live horse right by the door. People freaking out like, Whoa, what the f- what the hell? A horse, you know, you, you don't see a horse in a store every day. This is your men's section here. We got boots up to $4,000. Really? Yeah. What, show me what boots cost $4,000. saw a pair the other day. A customer picked up a pair the other day. Something like this. This is going for $4,000. This is all alligator. We have a hat that's made out of chinchilla. It's going for $5,000. Where's the family from originally? Uh, my parents are from Mexico. My mother's from uh, Zacatecas. And my dad's from a place called Durango. Okay. And we were all born and raised here. And we've been in business a little bit over 30 years. I guess well, one of the things I'm trying to do, too, is find out um, stories about people moving. My mom, she was worried about me moving here, but she's an immigrant herself. She was born in Mexico. Okay. But, and my father was born in El Salvador. El Salvador, okay. So, uh, you know... So your parents are Spanish and that? Yeah. You speak Spanish? I don't. <laughs> you don't? <laughs> no, I can understand a lot of Spanish, but uh, but when it comes to speaking it, I'm a little scared. So what do you think? Do you think I'll, I'll learn Spanish now that I'm here in Chicago? Well, if you, if you understand it, if you want to at least understand, that's a plus right there. There's so many people here in Chicago that speak Spanish, and you, you'll catch up. Entiendo mucho, pero... No, 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 no. Don't be afraid. If you're afraid, you're never going to do it. Hi, Mom. This is Peter Fuente from uh, the Department of Streets and Sanitation. 
uh, Bureau of Electricity. We're working on a one-out on Hoyne and Chicago. So um, we just ran into your son, Jonathan. Seems like he's got it together. Don't worry, he's doing fine. <laughs> Mom, we've sort of been at this for a while. What do you say we uh, stop somewhere and get something to eat? There's this Costa Rican place called Pirasu, which has uh, burritos and these really delicious oatmeal shakes. In Costa Rica. What, is, what does the name mean? Irasu? It's a volcano. We had a lot of volcanoes in Costa Rica, like maybe nine or ten volcanoes. I, my dream was this, to have a little tent like this. Had you been cooking for a, a long time, your whole life? Oh, yeah, I do. Since I was little, because we are 15 brothers and sisters. 15? Yeah, and then... When my brothers, smaller than me, was little, I take care of them because my mother got too many kids, you know. Then we cook, we clean the house, we do a lot of things at home. You get a lot of young people coming in here, don't you? Oh, a lot of people like you. All my, my, this is my best friends for me and my best customer. They call me mama. They do? Yeah, they call me mama. I feel good when they say, hi, ma, how are you? Do you miss Costa Rica? I mean, you, you oh, always because uh, I miss Costa Rica. It's not Costa Rica. It's my family. I'm very close to them, and I live here for many years without family, except my kids and my husband. I'm, I'm here without family, and my mom is. is <laughs> my little brother's still at home, but uh, I understand very well because. Right now, I'm only me and my husband because they already moved. And then I feel sad again because um, it's very lonely. It's not my girl, it's just me. I am my mom's first son. Mm, it's a little hard for your mom. <laughs> <laughs> Some people, it's not a big deal because they've got some, the funds and the means to fly back and forth. But I don't, you know, and so I miss you, and I don't know when I'll see you again. I'm happy though, Mom. In fact, I was thinking, um, do you remember when you used to get up on um, Saturday mornings and vacuum the house and play that same Linda Ronstadt record? Okay, yeah, yes, I remember. But I don't remember exactly what it sounded like, but I know that there was like some horns and then she would start singing uh -huh. and, and it was it was really loud uh -huh. I was angry about it every time I heard it 
but um, it always felt good and comfortable. Uh-huh. And um, I don't know, I, I feel that same sort of feeling here in Chicago. I think. Like you're at home. Yeah, kind of. That was Letter from Chicago by Jonathan Menhivar. This is the band Manitoba from their album Up in Flames. The tune is called, appropriately enough, Crayon. Why is that appropriate? Stay with us and find out. Thank you. 
That was Manitoba from their album Up in Flames. When Damali Ayo was a child, she looked for herself in a box of crayons. All she could find was a beige flesh tone, and that didn't even come close. As she grew up, she grew more determined to be represented in the color palette. She also became a conceptual artist. Mixing her determination and her art, she outfitted herself with a hidden microphone, which accounts for the sound quality of this piece, and set off for the local hardware stores for our next piece titled Paint Mixers. James left outer forearm by scanning machine, July fifteenth, two forty-six p.m. Neutral base. How can I help you? Well, sounds like you can mix any paint color, right? Just about anything. You give me something, I'll do the best I can with it. James is my first and my favorite. I was nervous, but I had inadvertently worn a revealing shirt, and I think my nipples showing through provided a distraction. The paint mixers never suspected I was recording them. I asked James if he could match any color. He said yes, and I pointed to my arm. James stepped up to the challenge. He kept saying, "Never done a flesh tone." <laughs> Never done a flesh tone, which I liked because it was the first time I can remember my brown skin being referred to as a flesh tone. I felt I was bridging some important barrier, redefining flesh. A white woman asked me, "What are you painting?" As her brown-skinned daughter appeared from the aisles, I smiled at the girl, whom she hugged tight to her as she said, "Isn't that fun?" Don and Dale left outside forearm by sight, July fifteenth, four fifteen p.m. Accent face. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well with yourself. I'm pretty good. I want to get a custom color. Okay. Don and Dale worked as a team. Don compared me to the fan deck of colors, then passed me up the line of expertise to Dale, saying, "Remember how you matched that peach that time?" Dale basically just eyeballed me. Didn't sweat it in the least. He hit it on the first try. Pretty impressive. This was exciting because it was a true interpretation of my skin through someone else's eyes. There is something about offering your skin as a color for paint. It isn't artificial. It isn't imported. It isn't coveting something outside of you—a photo in a magazine, a mango, or your neighbor's house. It's there on you all the time. You own it. You don't have to covet it, 'cause it's yours to do with what you please. Hi. How you doing? I, um, I wanted to match a paint color. Okay. Peggy, right palm by scanning machine. August fifteenth, eleven thirty-two a.m. Tint base. I just want to match my palm. Cool. Peggy didn't seem drawn in by the innate sexuality as the others. Part of the appeal for me is a promiscuity of sorts. These brief encounters that allow me to share a part of myself, to ask someone to experience me and offer a souvenir of our interaction. It's selfish, indulgent, vain, and seductive, and I miss that with Peggy. She didn't make small talk when the paint was mixing. I miss the small talk. Brent, face, right cheek by sight. August twenty-fourth, four forty p.m. Ultra base. Brent was the most intimate of all my paint mixers. He spent fifty minutes with me, and he touched me a lot. I had been single for two years at this point in my life, and intimacy came infrequently and from strange sources. I've been at this since 1974, and I've never matched anybody before. He came around the corner and got close to me, tilted my chin just slightly to catch a better light, held the sample up to my face, and always returned to add just a touch more of one tint or another. I have to admit, I was attracted to him. I found myself responding by saying, "Whatever you need me to do," and. 
I trust you. I think my subconscious was storing Brent away for some later sexual fantasy. Heather. Andrew. Lower back. Deep base. By sight. Left breast. By sight. White base. August 24th, 3.30 p.m. Andrew was diligent, honest, with a bit of a cynical edge. When I asked him to match the color of my back, he said, Is your back a weird color? The paint store was empty, which offered me a privacy I hadn't had at other stores. After matching my back, Andrew asked, What's the uh, slightly more intimate that you need to match? What's the slightly more intimate that you want to match? It's this part of my breast. Sam, it's so much lighter. We proceeded to mix a color to match my left breast. He said he hoped he didn't get fired for this. He took me to the back of the store. I revealed enough of my breast to offer him room to compare colors. I didn't think he was phased by it all until he told me my paint was free of charge. Michael, right thigh, November 20th, 2.21 p.m. Deep tone bass. Michael was the last. On matching my skin, he said, Well, just have him match me. It's pretty close. When I asked him what nude was, he offered, Like, my arms are one color, but then my butt's a different color. You know, more nude. After an hour, Michael came up with my least favorite color. More of a taupe than a vibrant thigh brown. But hey, this is all about their interpretation, not mine. Paint Mixers, produced by artist Damali Ayo and Dime Roberts for PRI's Studio 360 from WNYC in New York. After secretly recording the actual paint mixers for the piece, Paint Mixers, Damali Ayo wrote to the salespeople asking their permission to use the recordings. They all agreed, and she produced her story. Then she used the paint to make Flesh Tone Series Number 1, an exhibit of work in all skin tones, real skin tones, including one room painted entirely the color of her left arm. If you want to see more of her work or read more about her, check out damaliayo.com. That's D-A-M-A-L-I-A-Y-O.com. Bit bod by bit bod by bit bod by. Well, if Damali Ayo likes to explore how we look to a certain degree, artist Pamela Z likes to examine how we sound. A San Francisco-based composer, performer, and sound artist who works primarily with voice, live electronic processing, and sampling technology, she composed tonight's last piece, Geek Speak. It was excerpted from a larger work called Parts of Speech, which was also a part of a sound installation at the Whitney Museum of Art in New York. Unconventional, experimental, funny. Let's take a listen to Geek Speak by Pamela Z. I, I, I don't know how to I don't know how to articulate it really, but jargon geek speak. I think a nerd, 
is somebody who my definition of a geek would be someone who finds what I call a geek the I basic the basic simple uh, got to be nerds. sort of smart or something how but a the, geek the, the computer kind of geek, geek stuff word geek or oh, nerd is uh, a language we I like all that math and I refer stuff. to as geeking out my definition of a geek would be someone who finds a machine or a really esoteric, like, logical to be really fascinating construct and likes to, and understands it, see what its limits are, and see exactly what it entails, play with it, and to the extent that they probably find it slightly more fascinating than conversation with most people. I, I, I don't know how to I don't know how to articulate it really, but I, I, the Unix operating system. I, I mean, when we say PC operating system, we probably Mac. No question. Oh, it's a personal computer that came out in the mid '80s. All the aspects of Unix that people hate. I've heard good things about Plan Nine, though. I, I, I don't know how to I don't know how to articulate it really, but I, I, an incredible piece of cruft. It's so gross. It's so crufty. It's this big organic hacks piled on kludges, piled on unstable foundations. Really frightening to look at. Translate all the computer stuff. Write an operating system. Write an operating system. Write an operating system. Originally written as 32-bit able, didn't have the ability to handle 32-bit data pass in the ROM. Or no, sorry, the machines had the ability to handle it before the operating system did, and then eventually had to go back and write an operating system to CX, where you have to buy a little enabler patch 32-bit mode. But the way that they've designed the system software is that you can tell the system to not look in the ROM for the information, toast. but to look somewhere else in the system. You know, they just rewrite it in the system and they change the pointer to toast. where that particular bit of data is. It's physically hardwired into this little piece of information. Is this little um, piece of there's a couple things. One of them is spanning. I'd be pretty much toast. That's not a good thing. And when you get the math wrong, you're toast. Get me in a lot of trouble. I would probably toast me. Another thing that might be good to fry myself with. Internet protocol. One little teeny control panel, Mac TCP. All that does is just translate all the computer stuff into TCP IP and then it's done. Bang. You know, things can still try and like grab memory space that they're not supposed to be able to grab and collapse the whole thing cool little box that it was so beautiful in that it was all structured cool little this box. is actually very very, very cool. cool that's just this a cool really thing really in and of itself cool. like how cool like that's just a cool thing in and of itself like how cool someone's the most exciting thing in modern cool although i do dream of computers and i had one really weird dream where i was trying to move my arm by double clicking on it
slash 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 backslash 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 slash 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 and I would have to put that in the geek category N E R okay so we're reading from the second college edition of the American a carnival performer whose show consists of bizarre acts such as biting the head on a flight. Each is a person that bites chickens' heads off. Well, a geek eats chickens' heads. Of biting the head off a live chicken or snake. The origins of the word aren't terribly pleasant. Oh, a nerd is noun slang, a socially inept, foolish, or ineffectual person. Orders their pizza by their fax modem. Just fax in their orders for their pizza, and it gets delivered to their workplace, and they never have to leave. What I call a geek, I think. I think uh, is what they call a nerd. So nerds can be can be hip, but be nerds. But geeks, by definition, can't be hip. So all geeks so, so are that's nerds, one aspect of what I think of as a nerd. So I would nerd sort of is sort of better than nerd. Doesn't have to be pejorative. Nerd can somehow be someone who's just you know really into their thing. Geek is just well, a loser completely somehow. Um, he was kind of he was a nerd, not a geek though, and that he doesn't really any good at anything. A nerd's got to be sort of smart or something, how? But a geek can just kind of be. A geek you know, on the other hand, I think it's sort of the mainstream. Somebody somebody who's a bit out of you know, touch thing. with their their mother dresses them funny. They uh, talk one funny. Who eats you know, computer they, bugs it might be a little technical oh, nerds are better than geeks, though. When you start calling something by its acronym, then you've like moved a step towards it. And when you've taken the acronym and start pronouncing the acronym as if it were a word, then you're then you're being that's where the geek code is. Computer geek. New Hacker's Dictionary, there it is. FTP stands for File Transfer Protocol, but people use it as, as an adjective, like, oh, I'll FTP that, not an adjective, people use it as a verb, like, I'll FTP that over to you. entry for geek code and geek out. Maybe either a fundamentally clueless individual or a proto-hacker, also called turbo nerd, <laughs> turbo you, geek. geek code. GUI for graphical user interface, and uh, Cluey for command line user interface. You know, very technical conversation with someone in a context it's where on, this might not be on, considered bit really bit a great bit thing bit to do. So if you're at a party, bit you might say, oh, hold on, I'm going to geek out. I mean, the pride comes and is like, yeah, you know, this is who I am. A pocket protector, a slide rule, or something of like, you know, the gen. Well, not slide rule because calculators work better. But like, you know, like a pocket protector, or like taping your glasses. It's like, you know, you just like having your glasses look nice is just not a priority. It just doesn't matter. You know, you'll dress how your parents dressed you in some like 1940s whatever, and so you've got like this bad knockoff of 1940s clothing. You know, why would I spend money on clothes when I could buy an external hard drive? Geek speak. By Pamela Z. More of Pamela Z's work can be heard and seen at PamelaZ.com. Okay, you might not know what this is, but here's what it isn't. A bike pump, a piston, compressed air. Well, it actually is compressed air. In a way, it's just compressed inside a Madagascar hissing cockroach, who, as you can hear, is... Hissing. I recorded these little guys, who frankly are not so little, while taking a tour of S.C. Johnson Wax Company, makers of Off and Raid. I was searching for a story to write, and as usual, a tax write-off. Well, the story really wasn't going anywhere. Oh, you know the usual. Here are the mosquitoes, the roaches, the larval stage of the God knows what. And then my guide informed me 
that S.C. Johnson takes a lot of care to hunt down the toughest street pests with lots of repellent resistance to see how their products will fare in the field. Then the story took the turn I was looking for. Try to guess where the most street-tough, pesticide-resistant, hard-to-kill pests were. Out of the entire country, the kitchens, the garbage dumps, the alleys, the abandoned buildings, where were the most hardened vermin in these United States? The House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. Believe me, I could not make this up. Gary Ackerman, representative from New York, had this to say about it when I interviewed him in 1995. It seems to me that resiliency is is uh, one of the conditions that we live with in in Washington. We have people coming back, nobody knows why. We have bugs coming back, nobody knows why. We have other people bugging the people that come back. One of the difficult things, I guess, is to do is, is to to eliminate little creatures running around Capitol Hill, especially when you have a speaker named Newt. That's our show for tonight. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. The program is produced by myself, Gwen Maxi, and Katia Dunn, and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Thanks to Eric Rudd for engineering tonight's show. You can hear today's program at chicagopublicradio.org slash resound. And while you're at the computer, you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world at thirdcoastfestival.org. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Sarah Lee Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Music for Resound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at chicagopublicradio.org. Resound returns next Sunday at 5 with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. Good night. Good night.